Mark Angela here, the president of CLGPS, and I want to bring your attention to our upcoming fall conference. This is the big deal. This is the big one. This is what we spend all year preparing to deliver to you so you get the best training, both experientially and didactically, in group psychotherapy. This year's conference is going to be at Cedar in Aurora, and the topic is desire, exploring wishes, fears, and impulses in group psychotherapy. We're happy to announce that our keynote will be none other than Dr. Lucy Holmes, she talks about the intersection between feminism and modern psychoanalysis. So for more information, to buy your tickets, right now they're on early bird, so they're cheaper. They're going to be going up September 1st. We're looking that this will definitely sell out, so getting your tickets early is important if you really want to have a spot. You can find information on our website at www.cogps.org or on our Facebook page. We're also looking for people to present proposals. So if you're inspired by this podcast or by what we've been putting out as an organization, please submit a proposal on our website. We're looking for people to run institutes and do both 90-minute and 180-minute workshops. Can't wait. Can't wait to see you there. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes or buy one of our recommended books through Amazon that are featured on our webpage, www.cogps.org. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The links to our profiles will be in the description below. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for future guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us. We're at coloradogroups at gmail.com. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. Well, welcome back to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and today I'm very honored to have in the room Soren and Brett from Queer Asterix. Welcome. Thanks, Thanks Thank for you. having us. Yeah. So just to begin with, I thought I might introduce you both. Soren Thomas is a queer and non-binary transgender licensed professional counselor and licensed addictions counselor trained at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, in the contemplative psychology and somatic psychology departments. Soren is the executive director and clinical supervisor at Queer Asterix Therapeutic Services, a nonprofit organization made up of queer and trans therapists and educators providing affordable therapeutic services for the LGBTQPIA plus communities of Denver, Boulder, and Longmont. And Brett Adamick is a registered psychotherapist with a master's degree in transpersonal counseling psychology from Naropa University and a founding director of Queer Asterix. Brett uses his experience as a queer, non-binary adoptee to illuminate the way back home. As a somatic therapist, Brett relies on the wisdom of the body and the clarity of the present moment to facilitate reconnection with the truth of who we are. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We're really excited to have the opportunity to interview you both. And since this interview, I think, is going to have a lot to do with inclusivity and with um, looking at ways we can avoid making assumptions about people and locations, I thought I might start off the interview sharing my locations and then opening it up to the two of you to share as, as you feel comfortable. Um, so I identify as a heterosexual, white, cisgendered male who is economic, economically and educationally and professionally privileged. Um, so this is Soren, and I am a white professional. Um, I identify as a non-binary or um, genderqueer person, and... Mostly, I just use the word queer. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm Brett Adamek. Um, I identify as a queer person of color. I'm um, from South Korea originally. And um, the word queer really encompasses um, most of my identity at this point. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys very much. And since um, I'm thinking about this term queer, and it's the very first word in the title of the organization, Queer Asterix, mm-hmm. which I think is a very cool title. At some point, I'd love to find out how that name came up for the organization. But would the two of you start off by saying, when you use the word queer, what you mean by that, how you relate to it, or how you understand that word? Mm-hmm. That's a big question. It's I'd a very big question. We could probably use the rest of the interview just for that. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just want to acknowledge that queer historically has been a very um, derogatory and, and um, hurtful word for uh-huh. a lot of people. And something that we're finding is that many people still have a very viscerally um, charged, negative charge reaction to that word. Um, I I think especially people, um, you know, maybe 35 and up or maybe even a little bit older than that, that word definitely had a different feel to it than it does for a lot of younger people today. it's really a word that's being reclaimed by the community, um, a real embrace of what makes us different. I think that, you know, the essence of queer is different in some way, um, odd maybe. Uh, and, and so I think that it's um, learning how to, to see the value in what makes us different, um, not, not ordinary. Um, yeah. Yeah, and what I'd like to add to that is um, we operate under the assumption that there is a normative way of being. There's a social construct of what it means to be normal, and that is um, pretty actually well-defined and ingrained into our experience. And to be queer is to um, be claiming a non-normative either one identity or intersectionality of identities. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, in a lot of ways, we're talking about it in terms of sexuality and gender, um, but also this organization recognizes the way in which it's used to describe um, uh, other aspects of being Mm non-normative. Yeah. I think that's a really important point to make. Um, in, In my experience, you know, gender, having a a sexual orientation or a gender identity that doesn't, that isn't embraced by the dominant culture is sort of a gateway into queerness. But in my experience, at least, um, just be, just having um, a non-normative sexual orientation or gender identity doesn't, doesn't inherently make me queer. So I think that that's um, a really rich discussion and and an important discussion to be having. I think that, um, you know, not to um, deny or disregard the um, the varying degrees of oppression and violence that people that live an outwardly queer existence face, but that queerness can be something that is arrived at in, in many different ways. And I don't think that um, it's exclusive to having um, a gender identity or a sexual orientation that is, is, is outside of the dominant paradigm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I really appreciate you guys going into that. And I'd be curious to find out if you'd each say a little bit about what inspired you to really get into this work, both personally and professionally. What drew you uh, and inspired you to really uh, make this a centerpiece of your life life's work? Hmm. I mean, I think I, w- I would start by um, just sharing that I grew up without a a, a knowing of um, that there was a possibility to be non-binary or trans um, that uh, you know maybe the folks that were in my life that identified as trans um, I, that wasn't pointed out to me I wasn't aware of it and for the first time um, when I was in grad school that was my first experience um, with someone who acknowledged to me this is my identity and that completely blew um, my mind because I didn't have that experience before. And all of a sudden, I had access to um, something deeper in me. And that's when I began to explore um, my own gender identity. And then that led me, you know, from, you know, if this was, that was my experience, then um, I want to be a part of other people having this experience as well. 
and maybe not even waiting as long as I did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, growing up as an adoptee and living in a primarily a dominantly white um, town neighborhood, um, it was very painfully obvious in many instances where that I just didn't fit. Um, mostly due to my race at that point, but you know, ultimately there was also um, layers inside me that you know just didn't feel like they would fit in with with everybody else. So I so even without the word queer, this has always sort of been this feeling of difference or otherness has always been been present for um, throughout my life, and I just felt that. Um, after doing a lot of work and going to Naropa and, and, and really looking at myself, that, that this is actually one of the biggest gifts of my life, too, is, um, is not just having an easy, um, fitting in easily somewhere. Uh, I think that it's really forced me to examine things in a deeper way. And ultimately, I think that it's healing to, to come to a place where your difference, what makes you different, what makes you unique is... Um, is really the gift that you have to offer to offer the community. So, um, you know, my one of my hopes in being a part of this organization is really just giving, making that permission more and more obvious that we all actually have this permission to be uniquely ourselves. Mm. And um, sometimes, at least in my experience, it takes, like Soren was saying, seeing somebody else who has really claimed that space for themselves um, to know that it's, it's really a possibility mm -hmm. for, for us. Yeah. So it sounds like you really want to offer an entire community of those kind of individuals that have claimed that in order to support other individuals who may be questioning or struggling with the pain of feeling different, feeling confused, really hungering for some sense of community to find that kind of support and resiliency within. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I could say that one of our values or focuses is very heavy on intersectionality. And um, what I can say about queerness is that for me, it was one of my first experiences being a minority group um, in the world. And that is the case for other queer folks, too, and not everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and so how, what's been so important for me is to have an experience of being a um, a minority person or um, you know part of a minority group, and then extending that compassion and embracing um, uh, the intersectionality of our experiences, and so and other people come at it different ways. You know, Brett was talking about um, you know first acknowledging his difference and understanding his difference in terms of uh, the color of his skin. And I just think that the way we can all come together um, in queer community is to to listen and to understand other people's experiences. And it seems like intersectionality is one of the key ways that a community can really do that. And I'd be curious if you would say more, uh, either of you would say more about intersectionality and how you see that um, kind of operating within the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would echo what Soren was saying. I think that when we have some um, some clear experience of being othered, of being cast out from from the dominant dominant culture, um, it's really painful, and it also illuminates um, in a in a broad sense what other people from other minority groups or uh, marginalized groups go through. Um, and I don't want to assume that, you know, my experience or anybody's experience is, is exactly the same as somebody else's, but just that sense of not belonging um, for something that you really don't have control over, you know, something that you were born with or born into, um, you know, that it, that it will disqualify you from, from certain resources or certain privileges. Um, that, that in that shared experience, I think there's an understanding of the need for collective liberation and that we're all sort of in this together and that there's at least an entry point into understanding other people's experiences of being cast out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for this reason, I think, is why um, we, um, our groups are not divided up by different identities. Um, in generally speaking, our groups are um, are divided up by interests, let's say for a writing group or book and film club or these different things, um, but we're valuing all the voices of all the queer and trans folks together. 
um, knowing that that actually can bring up a lot of uh, can bring up a lot um, when we're talking um, about intersectionality and really diving into that. But we've found that people are um, up for it and wanting it, and um, and that has um, been supported by our contemplative approach, mm-hmm. um, the way that we hold the space. Um, the way that we hold the space enables those dialogues to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do think that there, you know, this isn't to just say we're all, we're all sort of the same under this queer umbrella. I think that there's a lot to unpack there too. And just how so many different identities and, and coming from so many different experiences, people, people land under this queer umbrella. And so there sometimes can be an assumption that, you know, we all get it. And I think to a, to a certain degree we do, you know, one of the, one of the things that we hear a lot in our groups is, oh, you know, I don't have to explain, you know, I don't, I don't have to do all this background education in this space. Like there's a, there's a base level of understanding of some of these, these topics that we're talking about. Um, but I think what I'm trying to say is that there's also, um, there's also a really important space to acknowledge our unique differences and, um, and to create those spaces as well. I think that currently we're, we're really focusing on, you know, what is this queer? What is queer? What, what's the, what are the connecting points in Mm -hmm. our experience? And, um, I think eventually it can also, it may also be useful to, to talk about finding what are the unique locations that, that really need a a closed container in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just thinking we, we just started a new group, um, a queer and trans person of color group. Oh, wow. And, um, and so myself and another director are facilitating that and that, um, there can be real healing value in in creating those those containers as well. Well, I'd love to get more into that because I think it also raises questions that I'd be curious to hear your perspectives on in terms of being an ally and what it means to be an ally, um, especially as a therapist. Um, but I, what I'm hearing is that within the groups that you're running, you really value the experience of both sameness in some areas while there, of course, being difference but really how you're holding the space at Queer Asterix, the way it's contemplatively informed, but the way that you're also working with the dynamics in the room really creates the ability to be different, but to continue to be in relationship with one another and to have it to be comfortable enough to face what's uncomfortable or safe Mm -hmm. enough to explore what maybe is frequently unsafe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, And like Brett was saying, for some of those individuals where maybe that's even you know, Boulder is a, there's a lot of white folks here, a lot of white queer folks here. And so where that's asking some folks to stretch a little too much, maybe, then we also create other safe spaces. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if that's how you're conceptualizing it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, could I back up just a bit? Because I'd be really curious to hear the, what the initial inspiration was for Queer Asterix Mm -hmm. and what was some, what, what's the kind of vision that really is the heartbeat of the organization? Mm-hmm. Anything that you guys might say about that? Yeah. Well, the, the vision started to um, come together in my mind when I was in grad school, like I mentioned, and I was transitioning at the time and had to um, go through a process of uh, professional gatekeeping in order to have access to gender-affirming um, hormone replacement therapy and also surgery. Um, I had to see a cisgender psychologist and have my mental status checked by that person. Um, you know, uh, all the boxes ticked before I was given access to the treatment that I needed. Um, even though this is an informed consent state, a lot of doctors still require these letters um, because of their fear around litigation. And that was a very painful experience. Um, and then later, what I also realized is a dangerous experience um, puts the um, client actually at risk. And I envisioned what would it be like for an organization to exist comprised entirely of queer and trans identified folks so that someone needing that procedure letter, if that's what the system you know, still requires, fine, we'll play that game. Um, could do it in a way that was more supportive and therapeutic than um, just an obstacle and a very terrifying obstacle at that. Mm. So what I mean is um, if a person needs access to something 
they are going to say exactly what they think you want them to say in order to get access. And so um, instead, as a, as a therapist myself, I, you know, if a person shows up and they're not actively psychotic, I am more than willing to, to write the letter, give the letter. It's an informed consent state. Here's the information and um, you can make your own decisions. And now let's talk about what your fears are, what, um, you know, who in your life may not be supportive, um, uh, your grief process. Um, because what we know is that an individual is at risk um, for suicide before and after these gender-affirming treatments. Um, and part of that is because there's all this push to prove. Hmm. Like you have to defend who you are or what it is that you want for yourself. And exactly. It, it seems like you're really flipping that entire situation where it's been an obstacle before. Yeah. And uh, incredibly traumatic, I would imagine, in yeah. some ways, to really have it be... Um, a warm and inclusive and affirming process. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, here, if this is the hoop that you have to jump through, just, you know, jump through it like 30 seconds done. done. Yeah. Now let's talk about the important stuff and, and let me be your therapist and support you through a large life transition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how did the two of you connect? And I'd be curious uh, how that occurred and, um, how you see this partnership that you that the two of you share in this moving this organization forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was a couple years out of grad school, and um, I just saw Queer Asterisk on Psychology Today. It was in its very early, early stages, and I reached out because um, I had just become aware that the the kind of professional that I was wanting to become and what I was needing from from community just wasn't out there yet, or at least I hadn't been able to find it. And so um, meeting with Soren and, and talking about the vision of Queer Asterisk, it just naturally felt like there was a lot of, of potential to create something new and, and important in our mm -hmm. community. Yeah, and in the beginning, our focus was primarily on direct clinical services, individual therapy, family therapy, group therapy. And um, what we began to realize very quickly as we invited community voices to share um, what the needs were is that there's also a need for social spaces, um, for safe, safer spaces to gather as queer and trans individuals and meet new people if you just moved here or build your network. Um, maybe you have an idea about something that you want to launch your own project. And the more folks you know, um, the more success you'll have, most likely. Um, and then we also, the last... Um, aspect of what we do is education and training. And predominantly, we're um, talking to psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health workers, um, sorry, therapists and, and social workers, um, and answering questions how to be more inclusive. Because what I found is that a lot of therapists um, or mental health professionals do um, want to know how to have these conversations with folks and they just don't feel like they have the tools and the understanding to do that in a way that um, causes the least amount of harm possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That seems really poignant, um, both because I'm hearing there are really ways that you've realized groups need to be held differently, these spaces need to be held differently in order to work with some of the dynamics probably around how we make assumptions and um, in the process of doing that, make spaces less safe or inclusive for other people that don't fit into some of those normative categories. Maybe we wouldn't realize that just by looking at somebody in that kind of way. But it's interesting when I'm involved with some groups, um, nobody shares their pronouns. Uh, the leader doesn't, members don't, everybody's just um, in the process. And there are other spaces that, I've, that I'm in where from the very beginning, people are sharing their pronouns. Mm -hmm. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about that, as well as ways that you see the therapeutic or the mental health community uh, shifting or needing to shift in order to continue to grow and to consider, continue to consider the, the needs of the people that we're working with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think part of what um, sort of a queer lens to therapy and groups entails is is really an, an openness and a willingness to not know something. Um, I think that when we talk about assumptions, it's we're noticing how 
automatically our brain likes to put things into boxes and categories and and you know in my experience i just want to name too like i make assumptions all the time i've made assumptions about you know all the probably all the people i've walked by today and it's really coming from i think a place of of just wanting to to be able to navigate the world um maybe it creates a sense of safety to some degree to have a, a category that something fits in um but i think that the more we are willing to not ultimately know anything um the more space there is for what's actually present to to arise and to to be looked at um so i think that you know queer looking at therapy through a queer lens is really about um radical permission for things to be as they are and not as we label them or categorize them to be what i like to say too is that there is um there's a lot of fear around being PC right now and getting it exactly right. Um, and um, I know when someone is um, extending their pronouns to me in a way that's textbook and this is um, what I've been told I should do versus what Brett was talking about is this genuine curiosity um, to check uh, their assumption about who I am. And so I like to create invitations in everything that I do. Um, and sometimes it feels right for me to say um, from a more privileged position, maybe that, um, and, and maybe this is my professional class when I'm teaching to say, you know, my name is Soren and these are the pronouns that I use. And um, who are you? Kind of like what you did when you opened this session here. Um, but I don't do it every single time. And I think that if it's done every single time and if it's done in a, um, a rigid manner, it, it loses the spirit of what it, what it is that we're trying to convey, which is um, that I'm uh, curious about who you are mm -hmm. and I'm aware of um, my privilege in this interaction right now, mm -hmm. maybe as a professional sometimes when I'm a teacher, as a white person sometimes, as someone who presents more masculine sometimes, and, and saying, you know, I'm going to take the first leap into vulnerability, and I invite you, if you feel comfortable, to meet me. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, going off of that, part of, for me, what the essence of this this space that we're discovering is, is really the, um, the option for people to self-define who they are. Um, I think for a very long time, we've lived in a culture that we're defined by the outside. We're defined by how we look or, or where we grew up or, um, you know, a multitude of different factors. And so um, I think that, you know, when we're, when we're creating a space for people to share their pronouns and to share their identity, what we're really doing is creating a space of curiosity of like, who are you? You know, who are you? Not who am I imposing on you mm -hmm. to be? Mm -hmm. um, and there's something very simple about that and also very radical because I think that we automatically are constantly sort of trying to fit and smash people into these things, these um, roles and these categories that mm -hmm. maybe in some ways fit, but usually probably not all ways fit. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, there's, there's, a, there's an openness. Um, and also fundamentally don't exist. I mean, they exist in the sense that they're very real and we operate as if we're real, so then they are, but also don't exist. They're made up. They're social constructs, male and female, man, woman. Um, they, they have no organic basis. Um, and, um, and even, you know, in the presentations that I give, we do break down sex um, and chromosomes. Uh, so, um, you know, I won't go into that right now, but the binary of male and female sex is even, even on shaky ground. Mm -hmm. It's a narrative that's sort of sold on it's a cultural a, layer, la layer, but it's not exactly. accurate, actually. And it's amazing how much we do to reinforce that narrative, uh -huh. um, that we, we make little exceptions and um, little procedures are performed on young children to make their genitalia more fit into that binary because we're so married to this idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... It, I think, Soren, you were mentioning some of what I might think about in terms of like a resistance or a hesitancy that people have 
in terms of going into these topics and wanting to talk yeah. about this and dialogue, which I notice even within myself, this concern that uh, I'm not going to do it right or I'm going to inadvertently um, injure somebody or a client or a friend by the way I talk. And yet I realize it also then leads to the situation where um, we're not talking. Mm-hmm. And so being spontaneous and being relational means we're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. It means that at different points that a person might uh, say, you know what, um, that's not the way I identify or you misgendered me or I might realize for myself that I did that. But being willing to continue to stay in relationship and dialogue seems vital in order for us to continue to really be able to talk about these things and move these things through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just curious, any thoughts that come to mind in terms of uh, how you guys see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that when um, one of the one of the most helpful things I think in this is to for people to be able to be with their own discomfort and their own not knowing in general. I mean, I'm going to keep coming back to that. Um, you know, what can often happen is when somebody is misgender somebody or offend somebody in some way there's all this discomfort created in the system and in the field of relationship but um out of this desire to alleviate that discomfort it often becomes about the person who sort of made the mistake and you know sometimes what can happen is it it, it just sort of opens this long this long monologue about oh i'm so sorry and i've been trying so hard you know i'm working on this and blah 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 and it it really can become about that person very quickly Mm -hmm. um and so i just like to say that that's really not necessary you know all you need to do is sort of say oh i i I noticed you know I, i made a mistake and i'm sorry and and maybe create an opening for a dialogue but just noticing what what part of this is me trying to alleviate my discomfort and what's just happened here? Yeah, and so then the person who was just impacted by being misgendered is now in the role of having to take care of the person who made the mistake. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then the relationship breaks down because it's no longer really about two people. Yeah. Well, I realize that also being that you you were both in Europa and, and trained in more transpersonal or contemplative ways of viewing um, these kind of dynamics, I'm wondering how you weave that in into the work that you do, or even from a view level. How do you approach this from a contemplative lens? Well, I often sit with this paradox um, around queerness in that um, on an external level, we're dealing with identity. We're dealing with fortifying identities, especially identities that haven't been acknowledged by the dominant culture, and that there's so much value and healing in that. And then from a transpersonal perspective, you know, this idea that ultimately our true identity is is an impersonal, you know, it's it's something that holds all of this. It's not confined to one individual person. And so my personal experience of queerness is really that. It's it's this space of not knowing, it's a space without labels, um, it's it allows for fluidity and change um, and ambiguity. So to me, queerness and, um, you know, sort of a non-dual or transpersonal space are very synonymous. Um, and I just want to be clear that that's, that's my personal experience of, of queerness. I think that uh, something that's beautiful about it is that there's so much space for it to mean so many different things to mm-hmm. different people. But in terms of the way that I relate the two, I think that they're very um, aligned and, and synonymous in a lot of ways. So, yeah. And what comes to mind when I think of um, a contemplative practice um, is fearlessness. And um, a lot of times I know that I make the um, worst mistakes and do the most harm out of my own fear and anxiety and tightness. And when I can um, soften and um, sit with that discomfort, move with that discomfort, um, and open myself up, that's when I'm my best self. And so to me, this is, it's the same way in working um, on this, you know, highly charged subject right now, we could call it a subject of um, uh, queerness, is how to um, hold all the fears that I hold around getting it right or wrong or Um, you know, not being enough or um, being too much is an, you know, those are all experiences I have um, as a, as a person. 
and how to um, mindfully and contemplatively move with that and not shut it down in me and shut it down in others around me. Mm -hmm. So it seems really important to kind of be able to hold this like a paradox. I mean, in the sense that um, we can't just retreat to any one vantage point on this, that um, I think some elements of this might seem like a contradiction, but being with the contradiction and being with the mess of it and not shying away from it, knowing that it could be messy or anxiety provoking and that it's going to be impossible to really nail down seems like that's some somewhat at the heart of yeah. how the contemplative view is sort of woven into this. Yeah. 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 And and really at the heart of what queerness is, you know, that mm-hmm. it is an under, it's an, it's a, you can't pin it down. It's sort of, I love sharing this about somebody in one of our groups said that, you know, if somebody asks them how they identify, they, they like to say I'm queer. And it's sort of like this, rainbow ink blot of like I've told you something about myself but I've really told you nothing about myself at the same time so it leaves so much space and I think that's part of why it's it feels very empowering especially for younger people that didn't grow up in in the time and space where it was a very derogatory word um, that there's this liberation in being in having a word that is um, is something and nothing at the, at the same time um, yeah um, I'm also one of the things that's really coming to mind for me is uh, the role of family in these kind of situations, mm-hmm. especially because it sounds like you're working with a lot of individuals that might be in the process of transitioning. And before you mentioned both ways of supporting the individual and including social gatherings and community as a part of that, I'm wondering your views on how to best support families and parents that are going through their own processes mm-hmm. around having a child or having a spouse that might be going through this kind of process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the keys are um, validating and normalizing. And um, when I work with families, I validate validate all sides of the equation, but I don't necessarily do all of that together. Um, and oftentimes what I need to do first is um, usually the, the young person is the one who's queer and, trans, or queer and trans in this situation. And so I'll have them sit outside and I'll talk with the parent, um, let them uh, share all of their fears, all of their grief, all of their um, stigma and judgments, um, let all of that be there and just validate the heck out of it. Um, and really, I mean, we live in a system that is toxic in a lot of ways, um, riddled with systemic oppression. And of course, we're going to have um, these things come up, these fears come up, these judgments come up. And so to validate that in a very compassionate way, I think is essential. Um, and then, you know, for the young person, I'm validating something different, their experience different, and then eventually getting everybody together um, and and uh, and working with the whole, and then by normalize, I also what I mean is that it's important not to um, have this be um, secret, taboo. Um, let that undercurrent happen too long, um, and it's very clear when you're with somebody and they, you know, maybe you're in a public setting and all of a sudden they whisper to you like, "Is that person gay?" You know, it's it communicates that that is not okay. And so to be um, particularly open and loud when I'm talking about these things, not obnoxiously loud, but um, you know what I mean? Not scared. Not scared. Yeah. So I think those are the most important things I'd say is um, to to be validating in a compassionate way um, and also to be normalizing. Mm -hmm. And then then once that's established, it's also really important to challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be really uncomfortable, but that's also important. Um, as a therapist, especially, um, sometimes I see things that are not that the the family has contracted with me to point out. That's my role, and even if that's a little bit uncomfortable, I I've got to do it. And that could be saying to a young person that we need to slow this transition down a little bit to make sure that everyone's on the same page. And um, that that's just what good parenting is, is to hold a container and a pace that is developmentally appropriate, not to deny the client their transition, 
And I think that can be really hard to say and it can be misconstrued as as you don't believe in my identity or mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think then also, you know, getting through a lot of the the difficulties and the challenges that that come when, you know, a family member is um is sort of challenging the paradigm of the family. Um, I think something beautiful that I've observed is just seeing families get to the other side where it really becomes a gift. And I don't want to diminish or deny all the all of the pain and struggle that is involved in this, but ultimately coming to this place where it's like, wow, this has really pulled us out of this this narrative that we've been living in our for you know however long that this is the life that we're supposed to have and this is the path that we're on and this is where we're going and it needs to look like this this and this and then something comes along and it doesn't have to be queerness it could be an illness or an injury just some major life shift you know um that there's so much actual value in that in that it it really disrupts this um sort of almost like half asleep assumption of how your life needs to look sure um and I think that that's part of maybe what is so so initially challenging about about this is that it really um, strikes the heart of some of our, our most fundamental foundations about how life should look um, and who we are as people. And so I think that that brings it back to the, the, the contemplative piece is like there's really no, ultimately there's no ground. You're not standing on any ground, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we, we like to um, trick ourselves into thinking that we are. And, and, and family is a big way, you know, I think for a lot of people that um, if you have the family that it, it looks the right way and it's, you know, you can check off all the boxes, then somehow that means there's a stability or a security there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so the gift of, of having a queer family member, I think ultimately can be, um, it just sort of opens up that, that whole set of assumptions. Yeah. It seems like such an important point, especially in Boulder, Colorado, which in a lot of ways sometimes has, um, all the semblances of a very progressive community. And I'm thinking of some parents that I have in my family practice, whose, um, daughter is going through a transition of becoming a, a son and the parents are really wrestling with their own identities as really being progressive and wanting to be supportive and valuing um, however their son wants to identify, but also going through a real grief process mm-hmm. and then not being sure where to place that experience or what context to both be able to support what's new, but also mourn what was and feeling like there's some kind of uh, discrepancy there mm-hmm. between that mourning process and 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 having more of a progressive or contemplative identity. Yeah, that's a great example. I, um, I've i worked with a number of those families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess the point to all of this, what I'm really hearing, and maybe this is the contemplative aspect of what you guys are offering, is really nobody's right or wrong, and nobody's emotional process is verboten in this kind of situation. There's room for, for everything. It's just a matter of where we turn for those different forms of support and how we make sense of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think that that's, at least in my experience, that's been one of the the biggest shifts is separating um, pain and comfort from good and bad and right and wrong. Um, and that things can be painful and that doesn't necessarily mean something's wrong or that something there's some something bad is happening Um, I think that in our culture we really equate um, you know feeling good with rightness and things working out with goodness and Mm -hmm. um, that so so really taking it and and deconstructing those assumptions those beliefs about the way the world is Um, yeah and I think this is a huge misconception when people um, are thinking about working with queer and trans folks is that um, there will be something, there's something inherently um, wrong with this person, even if that's not a, um, a cognitive idea that they have. I think it implicitly plays out in that, you know, maybe there's an assumption that this person has experienced um, sexual abuse or physical abuse or um, has tried to commit suicide and all of those things are very real and may indeed have happened but there's a difference between expecting them to happen and expect or expecting them to have had happened um, and um, you know being willing to work with them as they arrive mm-hmm. does that make sense mm-hmm. it does. yeah, yeah. 
Um, and I've had someone ask me um, or, or comment to me that, wow, it must be really difficult to work with queer and trans folks all the time um, and hear how difficult life is and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and actually how damaging that is to, to have that belief um, and for me to hear that. And really the reality of a lot of the work that I do is, yes, there's some support around um, systemic oppression is real and being misgendered is real. There are very real um, barriers to employment and housing. But a lot of what I'm doing is queer and trans folks are resilient. And um, a lot of that is is already being worked on. It's not new. And so a lot of what I'm doing is um, helping individuals actually blossom and have access to the things that they really want to have access to, their creativity. And, um, and that actually makes therapy really exciting for me. Enlivening. Enlivening. Yeah. And if it was just folks coming in and complaining about how awful their lives were, I wouldn't be doing this work still. That's <laughs> yeah. too much. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that because I think something that I've observed is just in a very short time, you know, to see a client who's really committed to being themselves and to transitioning into their full full expression, just how how that permission opens up the energy for so much more authentic expression in the world and and work and passions and relationships that are very congruent with with the person mm -hmm. and i think that um you know my guess is that most people are walking around with a lot of areas in which you know they're still not really letting themselves be fully who they are and um so to to have such a um a tangible way to work through a barrier that is um, preventing somebody maybe from really being who they are. There's just a, a flowering and like a, a blossoming that can happen um, in that space. It reminds me of a supervisor of mine that talks about uh, being a therapist as almost being like a midwife, that you're mm -hmm. really supporting the psychic birth or the coming alive of a person in a new way. Yeah. And on this, oh, go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say, and as therapists, we know that um, we can fall, or I know that I can fall into this trap of if I'm constantly looking for what's wrong, we're going to continue to find things that are wrong. And that actually, that's not the work of being a therapist. Um, I am fully prepared to sit with a client um, with what's wrong. But if that's our lens and our focus, it's just going to be lifelong therapy, one thing after another, after another. Um, and I don't, that's not my job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and especially on this um, podcast in this society, we get very curious about the ways groups are being leveraged for these kind of same goals and to these same ends. And I understand that Queer Asterix is actually in the process of really offering more groups and fortifying that aspect of its programming. So I'm curious how the two of you would see that component of what you're doing and the ways that you're leveraging group as an opportunity for engagement and to support individuals going through this process. Well, groups are really cool because they get you out of yourself um, and at the same time get you more into yourself than <laughs> than um, in the safety of, the, of a room with just one other person there. Mm -hmm. um, so my experience of groups has been that um, folks find even deeper places that they're wanting to um, grow into or, um, you know, look at it for themselves um, based on how they were received by the group. And then also can really light up as they can lend their mentorship and support and presence to others in the group. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we've been talking about this whole time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that groups really bring up um, sort of the bigger picture and the ecology of of all of this. And um, I'm so grateful for our, our friend Pinar, um, who started, So and Pinar, who started a, an organization called Queer Nature. And they're doing a lot of work with, um, you know, reconnecting queer, queer people to the land and to, to nature-based skills. And one of the things that I've really taken away from, from my time in that space is just how essential and natural queer people are to the to the overall ecology of of the system and i think that for a lot of people we've grown up thinking that we're somehow 
just like a mistake or like something went wrong and that you know where where is our place because really in in the culture the dominant culture there is no there isn't a place um but in in other cultures there have been um very distinct places for for third fourth fifth gender people mm-hmm. um and so i think that in groups what i notice is there's this sort of sometimes subtle sometimes more overt but just a rec a remembering of like oh yeah we have a place here and we actually have something uniquely valuable to the culture at large you know maybe the ways we've we just haven't been able to make assumptions in the same ways that other people have for whatever reason our gender our sexual orientation or the way we want to be in relationship with people and so i think that there's um a powerful remembering of that we actually have value um together and and sometimes it's hard to see that value in yourself but it's so clearly evident in the person sitting across from you in a group mm-hmm. yeah yeah that was so well said and to that i want to say it also becomes a very natural environment to separate out what's systemic oppression and what's um, ours. And when I'm sitting across from a client in the consulting room, sometimes um, it's um, I have to say, hey, did you consider that you're not um, you know, a bad person or whatever it is that actually you've been indoctrinated to believe that about yourself? Are you really in this instance um, you know, not living up to your full potential or are there other things at play? Mm. And when you get folks together in a group, it becomes more naturally obvious that, well, we can't all be this way, you know, that there's that there's some interjects that we've swallowed or there's some internalized um, messages that are creating toxicity here. And, um, and that can be a huge relief mm-hmm. uh, because at least the majority of the folks that I sit across from take on a lot of that personally. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why the suicide rates are so high um, is because those internalized messages, um, they really do get internalized and people uh, think that they're bad and wrong. And um, really, it's just uh, how we've been indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that this cultural piece is coming in because there does seem to be in, it, within the broader culture of this uh, systemic level, there seems to be two, if not more, but two kind of very overt drives happening. One is um, a kind of zeitgeist that it seems like it almost exists with uh, gender being listed on the cover of Time magazine or Newsweek mm-hmm. in terms of really talking about what are our assumptions and then what the reality is. And um, people being engaged more at looking at their assumptions and talking about um, the binary that's happening on uh, more of a, a broader level than perhaps ever before. While at the same time you have states like North Carolina and Texas that are passing more transphobic laws and are getting tighter and more restrictive, mm-hmm. more aggressive in some ways. So mm-hmm. I'd be curious to hear any thoughts that the two of you may have on that kind of emerging paradox that we seem to be really wrestling with mm-hmm. on, a, on a very broad cultural level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that gender, the conversation about gender, uh, like I said before, it really strikes at some of our most basic assumptions about who we are. And so when something that you've relied on as stable and true is being um, questioned in a certain way, you know, I think some people, you know, depending on your trauma history or whatever, I'm not even exactly sure what it is. Some people are like, oh, that's like curious. And, you know, I want to know more about that. And then other people are very much like, that's a threat. I don't want to know more about that. I want to actually make that go away. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that, you know, it's, it's a very actually natural response in a way, sort of a polarizing response. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that gender is such a beautiful thing. Somebody said, you know, there's this whole idea that we're trying to create a genderless society. And um, in some ways, maybe that's what people are, are interested in. I feel like what I'm, the word that I really connect with is like a gender full society where, you know, all gender, all expressions of gender are welcome within everybody. And um, I think that gender can be such a, a beautiful exploration of self and, and um, expression when it's, um, when it's really, you know, owned and looked at and um, claimed. And I think before that, gender can be a very constricting and limiting place. And, um, you know, really, this this is about, for me, it's about the freedom for everybody to be 
as they are. And I really think that that extends to, you know, hetero, hetero, cis, straight people that are also maybe less, more or less aware that, you know, oh, I can only really operate in these certain ways, actually, before I hit an edge where I'm, where I'm questioning, I'm wondering, is this safe? Or am I going to be judged by this? Or how, how's my so-and-so going to think about me if I do this? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, if we're honest, we all hit those walls in different ways. Um, So I think that it's really about the freedom for all of us to, to really express ourselves fully. Mm -hmm. Um, And gender is a huge part of that at this point. Yeah, I mean, my response to your question is um, uh, very similar to what Brett just said, which is that um, there are, we have varying responses to, and what comes to mind is conflict, um, when there's some level of disruption, and some people lock down and go into rigidity, um, and other folks, um, you know, soften and move towards it. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So... I'm realizing the time, and we're going to have to end soon, but one of the things that COGPS really strives to do is to support clinicians, therapists, everybody in this field to really be helping themselves to grow and to work their edges. And so one of the ways that I like to end the podcast is actually by asking this question around what each of your edge might be currently that you're exploring as a therapist, as a clinician, as somebody in this field. Mm-hmm. Well, I can say uh, certainly that my edge is understanding whiteness better. Um, And, uh, you know, especially um, I identify most as white professional. Those two feel um, like that's the package that I'm trying to untangle right now. And so this is my perfectionism. Um, And uh, so all of the, um, you know, intellectualizing. So there's lots of ways that um i have been operating and um have been giving feedback that that's the right way to be um that are actually um uh destructive mm-hmm. and so being able to um look at those more closely um and peel away what is valuable and i do want to hold on to and and wield in a way that's responsible and what are just um uh, old habits that um, uh, that I've been taught that cause more harm mm-hmm. than good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the edges that I'm constantly holding is is this, um, you know, defining queerness. I think that it's such a like, you know, we're having a whole conversation about it, and yet at the heart of it, it's it's for me again, it's about not having a definition or not being. Um, aligned or or attached to a definition mm-hmm. um and so there's like an inherent contradiction in, in that mm-hmm. um what about identity work i mean working with identities and also um you've spoken a lot about that mm-hmm. you want to share? yeah i mean i think that um it's it's really learning the place of the use of identity and then where it, it becomes more of a burden than a than useful. Mm. Um, and I think that it's a tricky thing to talk about because it's very important actually to be supported in your identity and, um, your individuality and all of the things that make you, you, um, and then to a degree. And then when does that become a barrier to opening up into more of these, um, universal dimensions of Mm. what we all share as, Mm. as beings. So I think that that can be, that really needs to be held with a lot of mindfulness because I think it can be easy to, for especially in our bolder like spiritual subcultures to sort of erase difference and erase the thing, the the very real um, oppressions that certain groups face. But, you know, under under the mantra of we're all one or, or it's all mm-hmm. love, which, you know, in my heart I know is is true. And if it's not acknowledging, you know, some of these more relative issues that we're people are having to face daily, um, then that's a big problem. So how to, you know, hold both of those. And um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. We're in the business right now, it seems, of working with um, identity development, identities, um, validating identities, and at the same time, um, like I was speaking to before about um, this this um, uh, quality of 
challenging. I also feel a responsibility to challenge identities when they become, um, when someone becomes fixated on them and begins to uh, decompress around them um, and maybe is married to uh, a victim stance. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to navigate Mm -hmm. um, how to um, affirm identity and also help people not to use it as a crutch. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, and I think mindfulness is the only way to go about that Mm -hmm. and compassion. Yeah. Well, there's so much here to continue to mine. I would love to have you guys back on the podcast to continue to talk about these things. I mean, especially from the contemplative lens, there's ways of kind of holding that we're all one where it's a spiritual bypass. And then there's other ways where it really becomes an opportunity to step into the unknown and not have uh, the security of a certain reference point, right? Which um, so much paradox here in some ways that we can continue to tease apart. So I hope we can continue to have this conversation but it's been an incredible honor to have you both on the podcast. And mm-hmm. I look forward to seeing the two of you again soon at one of our COGPS events. I know you're sponsoring the annual conference, so we really thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And um, where can our listeners continue to find uh, the two of you to find Queer Asterix and the events and offerings that you have for the community? Well, I would direct people to our website, which is www.queerasterisk.com. And we're also on Facebook, um, Queer Asterisk on Facebook. Um, our, our Queer Conversation in Boulder is the first and third Tuesday of the month from 6 to 8 p.m. And I think we're going to be extending that to every week in August. Um, and yeah, all of our other events and happenings are on our website. Mm-hmm. And I could also say that we're a nonprofit organization Um, We try to offer affordable services um, and offer sliding scale and leave pro bono slots for clients. So if you'd like to make a donation, you can also go to the website and make a donation there. And that would really support clients who, um, you know, can't afford to pay market value for therapy to seek out our services. Fantastic. Well, Brett and Soren, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.